So welcome to the new school. I'm Michael Lerner, uh, co-founder of Commonweal. Uh, for those of you who are new to Commonweal, uh, Commonweal is essentially dedicated to healing ourselves and healing the earth. We've been doing this work for 36 years. We have at any given time about 12 programs that are dedicated to supporting the resilience of people and natural systems. We work with people with cancer in the Cancer Help Program for 26 years. We've done week-long retreats, which has been at the heart of my personal work at Commonweal. We work with health professionals. Many of you know the work of Rachel Naomi Remen, our medical director at the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness. We work with art and healing in many respects. Uh, we have a new institute headed by Joan Evans, the Institute for Art and Healing. We work with environmental health scientists and advocates uh, through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, partnership of 4,000 people around the world. We have a new integrative law institute, and I'm pleased and proud that Pauline Tesler, its director, is here today. We're really thrilled. She literally has written the book on collaborative divorce and on healing the legal system, and hopes to do for the legal system what Rachel Naomi Remen has done for the medical profession, and we deeply share that hope. So, um, um, we work in uh, permaculture gardening, the Regenerative Design Institute, an extraordinary garden headed uh, by James Stark and Penny Livingston Stark, um, and um, we work for justice for young people. We've been a leading uh, advocate for the juvenile justice system in California uh, for 36 years. So finally, uh, and I'm just giving you a, a very brief version of the 12 programs, the new school. Every other program at Commonwealth is focused like a laser on some particular piece of work or training or education or service that it does. The new school differs from all the others in that it's focused on the emergent. It's focused on what is emerging in the culture, what is emerging in consciousness, what is happening in commerce and nature and science, and exploring those things as they show up for us with a deep sense that we are intuitively led through a process that we cannot understand or describe to bring some of the leading thought and action leaders of our time into our extended community, both our local community in West Marin and our global community of people around the world who listen to the New School podcast. Over the past four years, we've held over 100 conversations, talks, and art, art exhibits and performances with thinkers, writers, and doers, people dedicating their lives to healing work, to service work, to the life of the mind, to the arts, and to the remembrance of the resilience and beauty of the human spirit. Commonweal is dedicated to resilience, and in that sense, it is dedicated to hope. Paul and I just had an interesting exchange about hope, which we may continue uh, after the, uh, because we have some wonderful, rich uh, uh, dialogue about what hope really means in our time, and I look forward to that. But I stick to the word hope. Commonweal is dedicated to hope, the hope that we may yet find the wisdom to live wisely and peaceably with each other, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in the presence of the nameless oneness, which is our birthright and glory. 
For many years, Paul Hawken has been a friend of Commonweal and a personal friend of mine. He spoke for the new school two years ago, and it's a great delight to have him return. You know, many of us think we know Paul, but I spent some more time today on his website, and I realized that most of us have just a fragmentary sense of who this remarkable man is. The short version is that he's an environmentalist, entrepreneur, and author. He starts ecological businesses. He writes about the impact of commerce on living systems. He consults with heads of state and CEOs on economic development, industrial ecology, and environmental policy. That's the kind of sort of quick snapshot. Then you dig down just a little bit, and you find he's written seven books, including four national bestsellers, The Next Economy in 1983, Growing a Business in 1987, The Ecology of Commerce in 1993, and my favorite, Blessed Unrest, in 2007. The Ecology of Commerce was voted the number one college text by, uh, by business and environmental, by professors in 67 business schools on the subject of business and the environment in 1998. Bill Clinton called natural capitalism, which Paul co-authored with Amory Levins in 1999, one of the five most important books in the world today. Paul's books are read in over 50 countries and 27 languages. Growing a Business became a 17-part PBS series viewed in 115 countries. Paul is also an entrepreneur, as I said. He's founded several significant companies, including some of the first natural food companies in the United States. And he presently had solar one, one Sun, an energy company focused on ultra-low-cost solar based on green chemistry and biomimicry. He's also the founder of the Natural Capital Institute, www.naturalcapital.org, a research organization located in Sausalito, which created wiserearth.org, an open source networking platform that links NGOs, foundations, business, government, social entrepreneurs, students, organizers, academics, activists, scientists, and citizens concerned about the environment and social justice. So those are the words on paper. But to listen to Paul, to spend time with Paul, to engage with Paul, uh, is, is really one of the um, unique opportunities to see someone who was given the gift, and not really a personal gift, but the gift of being a channel through which our collective aspirations come, and who is able to help us remember why we are here and what we're trying to do together. So it's a very, very great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Paul Hawken. I remember uh, introducing this um, quite extraordinary person from India. I thought I gave a, 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 a really complete, wonderful introduction. And then he, he turned to the audience and he said, the way you introduce somebody says everything about you. <laughs> and what Michael just said says everything about Michael Lerner.
and I uh, couldn't be, I don't know what the word is, but more honored, I guess, you know, to be in his presence in his company. We have known each other for a long time. Um, Bolinas itself, this whole area, is just so extraordinary. I mean, the people who are here. <laughs> I mean, if it got cut off in the United States, I mean, <laughs> it would do really well, but <laughs> I'm not sure the rest of us would. <laughs> and uh, Commonwealth is just this island of, of visionary sanity. And we were talking earlier about the fact that Commonweal has really gone against the grain in terms of civil society and the diversity of the programs that it has focused on and focuses so well. Um, and Michael mentioned them. And um, it mimics life in the sense that we don't do just one thing. We're not even just one person. You know, as Whitman said, we're a Congress of selves. And, and uh, uh, you know, Commonweal is just a... a you know, extraordinary thing. It's a, it's a one-of. There's many NGOs where you can see similar ones all over, and thank God you can, actually. But with Commonweal, I wish we could see similar ones more over, but this is an extraordinary organization. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. I want to um, also acknowledge today is, a, is the anniversary of uh, Charles McGlashan's death, who was our supervisor. And uh, about three, 400 people are at the West Point Inn right now commemorating Charles, and I... Um, would be there if I wasn't with you. And so I promised them that I would share that with you and know that um, there's a bunch of people up on the mountain right now uh, celebrating the life of a really extraordinary person in Marin County. And uh, he's a great friend. And um, his work lives on. And I also want to uh, acknowledge both the um, elders and ancestors of the original inhabitants of the land upon which we speak, uh, the Bodega um, Bay Miwok uh, of the Utian language group, and um, people who cared for this land for thousands of years in ways which were quite extraordinary. We um, often think of hunting-gathering societies as um, this, that, they hunted and they gathered. And what we miss, I think, in that is that they intervened. They also intervened into the environment extraordinarily so. And we think of them as non-interventionists and worthy interventionists and all our interventions have gone wrong. Um, and, but if you start to look at the history of this coast and you start to look around the world, you see a very different story painted by the interaction between indigenous people and their environment. In fact, 4,000 years ago, um, something happened from the Aleutians all the way down to Santa Barbara, and that is that all the peoples who lived uh, on those coastlines take, took the pinniped population and chased them offshore. And the rookeries were onshore until that time, and the rookeries were uh, offshore after that. And in the process of doing so, they made hunting pinnipeds much more difficult. They had to use bidarkas up in the north, which if they capsized, you were dead in those waters. Uh, and the pinniped population exploded. So they increased the productivity of the pinniped population because no longer were their offspring predated by coyotes, wolves, bears, etc., mountain lions. So they lost their predation and the population increased. And actually, there was more food 
for the natives living along the coast. So here's an example of intervention, which was not only quite brilliant, but how did it happen simultaneously from Santa Barbara up until the Aleutian Islands? Who, what was the communication? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, birds. <laughs> and, and I remember Norman Myers, who this wonderful ecologist uh, at the University of Cambridge, he wrote a book years ago on, on rainforest, the primal resource, or primal source, I forget the name of it. Uh, primary source, I think. Um, but he described going into the Borneo forests, which are considered the most primeval of all the uh, uh, rainforests in the world, you know, considered to be 40,000 plus years old, you know, untouched, so to speak. And he went there with an ethnobotanist, and that ethnobotanist stood in, so walked out in the forest, and then they stood. And in, in, in during eight hours, that ethnobotanist just took it degree by degree by degree and pointed out that everything he was seeing was there because of human intervention. Everything. But the intervention wasn't chainsaws. The intervention was when a tree naturally died, then it would always make a clearing. These are diptocarps that are, you know, 200 plus feet tall, but of an enormous girth and caliper. And they would just make a clearing. When the clearing opened up, they would plant. Whether it was cuttings or seeds for food, for fiber, for medicine, right? And they just did this over tens of thousands of years. And so that the forest that we consider to be primeval and you know, original and wilderness and so forth certainly had that look. <laughs> but from an ethnobotanical point of view, it was created by humans in relationship to nature, right? And again, changing and increasing the productivity. Of course, the buffalo commons, the fire ecology of the Plains Indians. Um, so there's many, many, the, 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 the Kirkus Kalagai, the, the, the black oak, they're all around the Sierras. It used to be in the valley. That's all courtesy of the Miwok, right? For food, right? Um, so, um, and there's great stories, you know, of when the first settlers came, so-called settlers, um, but they came into the valley, and it was like, they said, one Englishman descri described it as Hyde Park, you know. It was like you had to push your way through the herds of antelope, you know. They were so tame. And, and there was huge, huge masses of lilies, which they harvested for food. They loved lilies, you know. And they would harvest one, you know, they'd dig them up and then split them, plant them again, take, uh, you know, part of it and eat it. And the, the lily grow and grow and grow, so it was like blooming, they had fire ecology, it was like a lawn, there was grass, there was animals, there was oak trees, you know, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, it was a pretty cool life. And when we intervene, we call it climate change, <laughs> right? And I think the question, when I, the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that we can, you know, romanticize hunting gathering, we can, um, um, extol the virtues of indigenous people. But the, 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 the point I get here is that they were a people, all indigenous people, people for whom this idea that we should connect to nature or that we're all connected was an impossible thought. They didn't even have the syntax for that. Yeah, because they actually didn't have the disaggregating experience. They never had the somatic experience of being separate. Right? 
So I guess my question always to us and, and myself is like, well, what is it that we can do now? You know, what can we do now? Because if you say, if you say, well, I'm so connected, I feel so connected to nature, you're not, okay? <laughs> I assure you. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, the wound of modernity is that disconnection. And, and you, I don't think any of you would be here had you not had some experience as a child or as an adult that actually opened up, you know, took away that veil, opened up that sense, you know, of uh, where you could see the wound and see that disconnection and feel something entirely different. Maybe it was just for a second, a moment, a day, whatever it was. Maybe you're high on something. It's fine. Whatever it was. Didn't matter you smoked it or, you know, whatever. It, the fact is you had that experience and it changed you. It changed how you saw the world. It changed what you do in the world. It changed everything, right? So I um, have been thinking about this thing of how do we intervene? When we talked about commerce and the relationship between commerce and business and so forth to, and, and the environment, it's really about intervention. How do we make things? What do we do? What are we doing here, really? You know? And I had the opportunity to... Um, um, go to the end of the world uh, with the uh, by imitation of the Prince of Denmark and, and um, I, I was so excited because I'm an English major so I was like yes you know, <laughs> the Prince of Denmark it's like <laughs> and he's actually a really nice guy <laughs> um, and he's the crown prince in the crown prince of Norway and the crown prince of crown princess of Sweden and the three Crown um, prince, princesses of those three countries are young, they're in their 30s, and climate change is affecting them very, very powerfully. It's more powerful in the Arctic than it is in temperate zones. And uh, they were doing a fact-finding mission uh, in northern Greenland to the North uh, Greenland Emian Ice Research Station um, and invited several of us, about five of us to go, four scientists and myself as a writer, to go up there with them in and we did a couple, a few years ago, uh, three years ago this July. And it, it is the end of the world. You, you, you go to Kongerlusik, which is uh, in the south of, of Greenland, and you take a C-130 that's provided by the Schenectady National Guard. I don't know why, but that's what they... <laughs> and it's one of those planes you see in, all the time in movies, you know, where you're sitting knee to knee and there's things hanging down and you pee, literally. Uh, not you don't, your donation is to the five gallon plastic bucket which you hope doesn't spill um, there's no urinal and, um, uh, and eat rations and so forth but you this plane uh, lands in whiteout and if there wasn't an, uh, a, a, a functioning GPS signal there that you'd be lost you wouldn't know where to go there's nothing there and it's to the very north of Greenland and there scientists for a decade have been drilling down into the ice core to basically uh, measure, you know, our past, in other words, and to discover. And the way science and the way indigenous people make the connections are very different. And science does it through facts, data, right? And it's trying to connect up, right, the world. How does it work? You know, the question we all have as children today as well. And they do it through science. And so here were these extraordinary scientists from 14 countries, and we land... 
There's a geodesic dome, there's a big tank of diesel, there's a container with a generator in it, there's five tents, and then there's a hole in the ground. And the hole in the ground isn't for, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the ice cave. It is where all the science goes on. And you go in there, it goes down six stories on ice steps, and I swear it's like a B-movie, like the thaw. You know, you go down there and you feel like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> and you feel like if you slip, you know, you're, you know, kind of worst nightmare kind of thing. And, and there they are with these machines, boom, 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 boom. And they're drilling down, you know, almost two miles down to bedrock. And what they're trying to do is catalog the last interglacial period, right? The Eemian period. And the Eemian period um, was uh, 300 parts per million, okay, of CO2. That was high. We're at 393 today, right? And the Eemian period, you know, lions and rhinoceros, you know, were, were romping through Germany. <laughs> and hippopotami were lounging in the Thames swamp, you know. <laughs> you know, there was no London. It was a swamp. It was, you know, because the sea level was much higher. Um, it was a very, very different world than today. And that's 300 ppm. And it just had this profound appreciation for science. I mean, uh, the week before a person had been there, every year for 10 years was the go-to person, you know, when you want to know what to do, what not to do, survival, everything. He was a guy. And he had walked out slightly underdressed. You cannot be overdressed there. Slightly underdressed and white out and broke his own cardinal rule because, you know, you know, it's not new carpenters who cut their fingers off in table saws. You know, it's the old ones who do, who do it so many times they know what they're doing and then they have a mental lapse. And he had a mental lapse, which is he tried to find his way back in a white out. You know, it's, just, it's stay where you are. Your, no, your absence will be noticed. People will find you, right? And he, within a week, he was a quadruple amputee. Just like that. He was out one night. He was a quadruple amputee. So what I'm, I'm saying is that, that, that what these scientists are doing on our behalf is extraordinary. This isn't like fun. It, they, they laugh and they dance and they you know, tell dirty jokes, but, it's, but this is serious business and so forth, and they're doing it on behalf of us. You know? And when I hear people say, I was just in Australia last year, politicians say, you know, I don't believe in climate you know, change. You know? I think, how interesting, how interesting. You know? And what I say is, you know, what, the, the figure ground thing has to be reversed here because it's not about belief. We are the skeptics, we're not the believers. We're skeptic, skeptical that this interglacial period of climatic stability is going to persist. That is our skepticism because we have no data to support that it will. That's all. They are the believers. They are the, they're in the belief world. Ours is based on science and so forth. And people came and said, well, the science is not certain. And that's true. And either is the science about gravity certain. It's not. There's a lot of uncertainty about gravity. And, but nobody jumps out of a 10-story building and says, well, the science is uncertain. I'm going to jump. <laughs> so, so there is this you know, really odd sort of you know, misunderstanding. And when you go and you're with these scientists, you, know, you have this profound appreciation you know, for who they are, you know, and what they do. And really, 
really extraordinary. And what we know, kind of technically, is that in 25 years, we have to reduce our carbon emissions by 80%, or we're going to surpass 2 degrees at 450 ppm. Uh, that's what we think. Probably wrong, but it's close enough. It might be worse. Um, might be better, but probably going to be worse. You know? And that's our mandate. That's our mandate as a civilization. And how do you do that? Saul Griffith, who's a physicist, has, and 160 other papers exist, and you can look them up, and they'll say, tell you how to do it. They'll tell you how to do it, what we have to do. And they're all different, you know? Uh, and what they say is basically what Saul says, for example, is that we have to cap our, our energy use at 16, 17 terawatts, you know? A trillion watts. You know, we're a 10,000 watt society, uh, you know, each of you, roughly. Uh, if you go over, over the hill a lot, probably a little more, but nevertheless, that means that to provide your life, you know, in food and transportation, housing, and all that sort of stuff, it means there's 100, 100 watt light bulbs on all day, 24 7. I mean, that's a 10,000 watt lifestyle. And those are Americans, that's us, you know. And most of the world is, you know, around 500 by the way, and some people are higher than that in, in, in Abu Dhabi and Bahrain and places like that, and Canada is higher, actually. But, but, but the point being is that we're a 17 terawatt, 17 you know, trillion watt society, and, and we have to stay there while two or three billion people come, arrive. So we have to go from 10,000 to right now we're about an, a, a, the median be 2,100 watts, we have to go to about 1,800 watts per person per day, okay? That's our energy budget. And then we have to take 80% of the energy we're generating with coal, natural gas, nuclear, etc., or maybe not nuclear, but certainly coal, natural gas, um, and um, replace it. Replace it. And to do that would require uh, 200, uh, 14, 15% um, uh, efficient solar panels every second for 25 years and 50 square meters of solar mirror every second for uh, 25 years and uh, one 3 megawatt uh, wind turbine uh, every 6 hours for 25 years and one 100 megawatt geothermal plant which is quite something really uh, every day for 25 years every day and one 3 gigawatt nuclear power plant every week for 25 years, and one Olympic-sized uh, swimming pool of bioalgae uh, every uh, second for 25 years. And then we'll get there. <laughs> That's, and what that illustrates really is how, how little we understand collectively how much we take. That's, a, that's, what, that's the point, is we are just, we are energy hogs, You're not just us. I mean, you know, we're the, probably the worst in, in, in scale, but no question. But, I mean, we just consume this stuff, you know, like it was going out of style, and it will soon if we don't change. And, and so um, this wound of modernity and so forth, this profound disconnection, you know, is leading us to, you know, to the, what are we going to do? You know, my question is, what are we going to do? I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't have answers. But I do know this, that is that deep in this culture, in this American culture, you know, this was not faced, this problem has never been faced, but so forth, but this question came up. And it came up uh, during the time of the transcendentalists. You know, and we have, 
in our culture, this DNA, where there was this realization of this wound, of this schism in ourselves, in ourselves, you know, in our relationship to nature. And in, 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 it's most exemplified by uh, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, and, and he was, you know, a preacher, you know, and a man of the cloth, and um, theologian. And his wife, uh, Louisa Ellen Tucker, who he married at 18, she died at 20. She was always, always of delicate health. And his life came apart. He just fell apart. He really did. He just crashed. He went into great, deep depression. Uh, and a year and a half later, he decided to leave America and go to Europe. And uh, on December 1832, he left Boston in the teeth of a storm and went to Malta. Uh, and there uh, he met Coleridge, who introduced him to John Stuart Mill. And he met Wordsworth when he got to England and some, you know, interesting group. Um, and um, but as he went up to boot and then uh, Sardinia and Italy and so forth, he finally got to Lund uh, Paris, which he didn't like as a city. He said it was just a raucous New York. And uh, uh, he still was not a happy camper. I tell you, when you read his journals, this is not a man who's happy. But he goes to the Jardin de Plantes, which is this botanical garden and the cabinet of natural history, both of which were created by the Jusso family. And the Jussos were scientists the word hadn't been invented. Actually, the word was invented the next year, but the word was not invented yet. So they uh, were scientists for, for centuries, really. And so father to son to uncle to nephew and so forth, they had passed down this amazing uh, trove of botanical knowledge. And the, the Jardin de Plant was like not an arboretum where you went to on Sunday, but it was like, you know, something that maybe, you know, Penny and James do. You know, it was like a living garden of plants and trees, and this is what they do, and this is how you do it, and this is what they're good for. And I mean, it was a teaching place. It wasn't a watching place, an observation place. But in the capital of natural history, which is adjacent to it, what they had done is both botanically with seeds and with plants and with leaves, and then also with um, fauna, they had started to arrange what they had seen over a long time, which is the relationships between these things. That is, isn't it similar? This is similar. Look at this. This is kind of like this, and this is like this. And, and started to see these arrays of relationship, and, and, and Emerson saw this in bird wings, in bones, you know, in, 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 in plant structure, and he, he, that was the turning point of his life. And he had this epiphanic experience of seeing the web of life. Now, and you read his journal that night, and he's ecstatic. For, he's just not just happy, he's ecstatic. He can't, he can't even go to sleep. And he's had that experience that, you know, where, and then he's questioning everything, you know, like, well, what is the nature of, 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 of the mind? If everything is nature, not just nature outside, but everything is nature. Paris is nature. Humans are nature. It's all nature. What is the nature of justice? What is the nature, right, of religion? What is the nature of... And he's like fascinated by the questions because it changes everything. How he writes 
can you actually have a war? How can you commit an act of war? Right? So he has had the experience of, of we, what we really means, right? So when he gets back to the United States, he writes his first book called Nature. <laughs> Didn't go far that <laughs> from what he was thinking about. And one of the very first people to read it is Henry David Thoreau. Right? So now you have this interesting transmission coming from the experience. But I'm going to go back to Emerson's experience because his experience, this awareness arose from what? Deep, deep loss. It's that opening of loss. He was devastated. Right? And it was in that openness of loss and grief that he could have this experience. Right? So Thoreau, being this young, you know, hippie <laughs> at Harvard, reads it twice, invites Emerson to give the class, senior class talk. Emerson gives it. He goes to his house after the talk, says, what should I do? You know, I, I've studied the classics. There was no business school at Harvard then. And, and, uh, and Emerson so cogently says, keep a journal, which he does for 7,000 pages from that day on. He keeps a journal. And that journal... Um, is just fascination. And in that journal, he talks about the day he's walking to Concord to get his shoes repaired, and he gets arrested by Sheriff Sam Staples and thrown in jail. And he gets thrown in jail because he is objected to paying the poll tax because it keeps African Americans from voting. And this year, there's another reason, which is Texas Rangers are committing mayhem and rape and pillage all along the supposed Mexican border uh, against unarmed civilians. Right? So he's arrested. And it wasn't a bad night. His sister, Sophie, brought him hot chocolate. <laughs> and he gets out in the morning. But there's a, there's a story of Emerson going there and being so upset that his student, you know, is in jail. And the story of, like, you know, Henry, Henry, what are you doing there? Because at that time, going to jail was, was you never went to jail. It was infamy. Your life was blotched forever. It was a black mark. You were in jail? You got arrested? You know? And, and, and the story goes, he said, you know, Waldo, what are you doing out there, right? Why aren't you in here with me? Well, that's, that never happened. But it's such a good story because it's emblematic of the split between Emerson and Thoreau. And the split was that Thoreau took his teacher at his word. Students often do that, teachers, so be careful. <laughs> And Thoreau said, there is, everything is nature. There is no separation. So what an army is doing in Texas on behalf of this country is me, is me. So Thoreau got that there's no separation between nature, if you will, the environment, and social justice. No line. You can't draw the line, right? 
And that, of course, produced amazing ramifications. He, wrote an, he gave a talk about going to jail, resistance to civil government. Four years after he died, somebody named that essay Civil Disobedience, a term he had never used in the essay or in his journals. No one knows where the term came from. And that became a meme, you know, through Gandhi, through Martin Luther King. That's another story. But what I want to say is that there's a less told story here about Emerson and Thoreau, which is through Emerson, before he married his wife, studied the Bhagavad Gita. His father gave it to him. And Thoreau, above his head, at Walden Pond, had a whole library, including the first English book called A Manual on Buddhism by M. Spence Hardy, which I have. You should read it, not his, but I have it. You should, it's amazing. It's interesting. Translated from the Sinhalese, the Ceylon, right? <laughs> and uh, with margin notes. And he had another book called Eastern Monachism, okay, with extensive margin notes. We don't know whether they're Thoreau's or Bronson Alcott's, but Either way, they're fascinating margin notes to see what people were, how they were assimilating this. But the fact is that the transcendentalist, this, this, this Orientalism, as they called it, you know, this Asiatic literature, I mean, it was gold. It was, they were just eating this stuff up. And it, if you read, you know, his, his account on the Merrimack River, it's full of references to this. And then his publisher said, when he did Walden, said, get all that stuff out of there. It's not helping sales. So he did. But it's actually, it's in there. Because for him, Walden Pond was the, was the Ganges, Ganges River. And for him, Walden Pond um, was not just going to a cabin, he was imitating, quite consciously, a Hindu yogin going to a cave. He got it from book. <laughs> right? So this, this, this infusion into this, our culture and the literature of you know, what they considered to be this you know, extraordinary, deeper source of wisdom in the world, you know, into Concord and then out again, so forth, is something we never hear much about. You know, Arthur Christie uh, said the transcendentalists turned to the scriptures of Asia because they could not live with an absentee God. Right? In other words, they couldn't live with that separation. Right? Right? So, so in an era today, you know, when we are trying to reconnect to everything, uh, we're trying to change our minds. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. Yes, we're trying to change the external environment. But all of us are trying to change our minds. Because the source of that wound is our mind. It's not, it doesn't exist anyplace else. It's all in here, right? But what we do is we're in a culture where separation is just hammered home, hammered home, every day, everywhere. And I have a confession to make. Um, but I was sitting at home with my laptop, and I was looking at my Facebook homepage <laughs> and watching a Republican debate. Okay, and, and now normally I wouldn't tell anybody I was doing this, but two things happened. 
One is on my home, home page. Somebody sent in a get out the vote poster for the Republican Party. It was a mock one, but it said, corporations are people, women who use birth control are sluts, college students are snobs, gay Americans are abominations, poor people deserve to be poor, Latinos are illegal until proven otherwise, the Bible trumps the Constitution, global warming is a hoax, the US president is a Muslim agent from Kenya, vote Republican 2012. And, <laughs> And I was watching the debate, and actually, just every one of these things came from somebody who was debating, you know, I thought, or tacitly, anyway, you know, birthers, and, you know, I thought, okay, you know, and, and rather than, I'm not ridiculing the Republicans, I says, more or less, I'm saying, I'm an anthropologist in that sense, like, what's, what's going on here? And what's going on here in this mock poster is really, again, this, thing, this sense of other. Everything's becoming other. There is a splintering and shattering of the world, right? And so these people are expressing it beautifully, actually. Well, who's left? <laughs> Them. But who are they? You know, in other words, everything's marginalized, right? And so just then, when the debate stopped, in CNN, you know, and they're going to analyze the debate, who won, who lost, and so forth. And there's this fantastic ad for Cymbalta. I don't know if you know Cymbalta. <laughs> you got to see it. It's just fantastic. It's used for treating back pain and depression. It's a, it, it, it's a twofer. And uh, uh, you make a lot of money when drugs can go both ways. And, 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 and there was this woman, and she was, had nice, beautiful silver hair, and and she went out, and there was a lawn and a barn, and she was sitting down, she had an easel, she was painting. It was like elegiac, it was idyllic, it was like, oh my gosh, Norman Rockwell. Behind her, however, was a voice going very quickly and saying, you know, don't take this if you have kidney or liver problems, glaucoma, diabetes, seizures, or have bipolar disorder, Cymbalta may worsen types of glaucoma and diabetes. A potential life-threatening condition has been reported when Cymbalta was taken with certain drugs for migraine mood or psychotic disorders, which it's for. If you're taking NSAID pain relievers, aspirin or blood thinners, it may increase the risk of bleeding. Cymbalta can increase your blood pressure. Your healthcare provider should check your blood pressure prior to, while taking Cymbalta, don't even think about taking it if you're pregnant or plan to become pregnant during therapy or breastfeeding. And then while taking Cymbalta, now, is your, now you are taking it, talk to your healthcare provider right away if you have itching, right upper belly pain, dark urine, yellow skin eyes, or unexplained flu-like symptoms, which may be signs of liver problems. Severe liver problems, sometimes fatal, have been reported. And if you have high fever confusion, <laughs> I was just watching confusion, <laughs> stiff muscles, which may be symptoms of potentially life-threatening conditions, uh, also, and if you have skin blisters, serious peeling rash, hives, mouth sores, or any other, he was doing it faster than me. Allergic, <laughs> allergic reaction, these may be serious, also possibly life-threatening skin reactions. If you experience dizziness or fainting upon standing, this tends to occur in the first weeks. When, <laughs> but when increasing the dose, it may occur at any time during the treatment. And if you experience headache, weakness, confusion, problems, concentrating, memory problems, feel unsteady, which may be signs of low sodium levels, or please report if you develop problems with urine flow, nausea, dry mouth, sleepiness, fatigue, constipation, dizziness, decreased appetite, or increased sweating at night. Mm. And I thought, I, depression never sounded so good. <laughs> it's like, I'll take it, man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It took that to say, I'll take, you know, I mean, so, 
<laughs> so my weird mind was working really fast then. I just watched the debate, I'd watched the Cymbalta commercial, and I thought, wow, political ads by candidates should come with disclaimers too, just like drug advertising, you know? And they should have the counterindications and the side effects, and so, so I wrote one. <laughs> And it said, do not vote for this candidate if you are older or think at any time in your life you might be old. <laughs> do not vote for this candidate if you are young, poor, Muslim, LGBT, need a student loan, student loan, know somebody who needs one or cannot pay off your student loan. If English is your second language or if you're concerned about political corruption, the corporate takeover of Congress, climate change, acidification of the oceans, if the candidate cannot pronounce the names of world leaders or spell or locate Luxembourg or Mozambique on a world map, side effects if you vote for this candidate may include loss of employment, collapse of your pension plan, loss of all living systems, unpayable national debts, senseless wars, illegal foreclosures, and headache and nausea. And so, But both, you know, what both of these symbolize with the with Cymbalta, which is this idea that somehow there's a symptom there somewhere that we can treat. And by the way, the fact that the drug goes to all your cells in your body, that's kind of a problem, you know. And and if you have a problem, tell us immediately because we certainly don't want anything bad to happen to you. And but this this same mind state that we all have to navigate in our work, you know which is, as I say, it's the shattering of the world. It's this atomization, this, you know, it's fractured, it's broken. It's like a shards of glass that we're stepping on, right? That should be intact and whole and knitted beautifully, you know. Um, and it's just so difficult. The last, when I was here, I don't know why I did this, but last time I was here at New School, I somehow, I was talking about fiat money. I was very worried about it. I'm not worried about it anymore. We see what's going on. It's just, it's horrific. but. But when you, when you look at what's happening financially, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. That the financial system is hollowing itself out. It's creating money and taking it. <laughs> you know? It's creating these amazing debt instruments, you know, and, and then trading it and swapping it and taking money. The, the, half of all the sales tax that uh, the Italians just raise their sales tax in order to service their unserviceable debt. And uh, half of it all uh, went to uh, J.P. Morgan uh, to pay off uh, some of their derivative debt. Half of the first year's sales tax. Boom, back to New York. And so forth. I mean, it's just astonishing. It's a monetary house of cards, and it's emblematic and so forth. And we have now 785 to a trillion dollars of credit default swaps, which are basically you buying insurance on my house will burn down, I'm going to buy insurance that your house will burn down, and now we have some really perverse incentives, don't we? Because I do well when something happen, bad happens to you, and you do well when something bad happens to me. That's the system we have now, 785 trillion dollars of those things hanging out there, right? So that's why you get the Goldman Sachs thing where we'll sell crap paper and then we'll buy insurance against it and make money both ways, right? Well, what is it doing, you know? It's easy to demonize that, well, okay. What I'm saying is, it is it's, 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 it's like financial Alzheimer's. It's creating Swiss cheese of our financial system, 
right? It's doing the same thing to our financial system that we're doing to the Athabasca tar sands, right? You know, it's just eating it up. It's eating it up. So it's the same mind, mindset. State, if you, there's, there's a wonderful video by Garth Lenz on TEDx Victoria showing the Athabasca tar sands. And really, if you look at the flyovers in the photographs, it looks just like um, MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. You know, it looks like a virus, you know, or a bacteria in this case, that can't be stopped. And it's just the way it's crawling over the landscape and destroying it. It's astonishing it, uh, 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 talk, but also the, the, the images are extraordinary. But I want to go back now, bring back what I was saying originally about indigenous people and Emerson and the transcendentalists, because their, the origin of their sort of this change in awareness really came from Asia. And Karen Armstrong, who wrote you know, this wonderful book, uh, uh, the former uh, nun, uh, Karen Armstrong, on the axial age, you know, and... Um, uh, talks about the origin of what you are doing, what Commonweal is doing, the origin of civil society, the origin of what the English call charity, the origin of citizens getting together by default and addressing, you know, the wounds, the the the, the injuries, the insults that we have done collectively in the name of progress or simply in the name of our own financial self-gain, right? And, and this movement is extraordinary, but if you trace it back, it goes right back to um, a, a time that uh, was very similar to ours. Somebody uh, asked me the other day and said, you know, the, the, it was a question, it was more like a statement, said, I'm, I'm very worried that we're going to go into a, a new dark age. And I said, don't worry about that at all. I said, well, why not? I said, this is it. <laughs> so relax. This is it. This is a dark age. How it, this is why we came. This is why you're here, by the way. This is not a bad thing. It just it is. It's just so. You couldn't have a time of greater ignorance. And if you go back to the origins you know, of NGOs and civil society, you go back to this idea of charity, you go back to, you know, the Greek philosophers, you go back to Sophocles, you go back to Isaiah, to the uh, Jewish prophets, you, know, you go back to Taoism, you know, the Lao Tzu, to Confucius, to Mencius, to Buddha, right? And what you find in that period is a time of great ignorance, great barbarity, great cruelty, great ignorance. And what these teachers did is not start philosophies or religions. They had no interest in that whatsoever. <coughs> what they were starting were social movements. Those were social movements. They were saying there's got to be a better way to be a human being than the way we are being human beings now. That's what they were teaching. And that lineage, you know, that thing that, that, that sort of then resurfaced, you know, and conquered, you know, is really extraordinary. And to me, when I wrote Blessed Unrest, it was like, well, 
the question is, and I asked it, what are we doing? What are we doing? I don't understand, you know. But then when I started looking at civil society, I started looking at the organizations and the groups and the people in the world, you know, and had the opportunity to meet them and hang out with them as do you, you know, and, and firsthand, you know, I began to kind of you know, pull back, you know, as I realized how many there were, I just thought there was 10, 40, 30, 40, 50,000, which is a lot. But as I began to research it, I realized there was 100,000, 250, 500,000, a million. I just, it's like, you know, pulling back and, and, and seeing that what you're pulling back from is much, much larger than what you thought it was. You weren't pulling back at all. You're actually getting far enough away to see the whole thing, if you will symbolically and so what you're seeing in my opinion is what we are doing and it's a very difficult question to answer on an individual level you know and on an individual level we can easily go to despair easily easily in fact it's almost irrational if you don't you know you know because the facts are so overwhelming the data are not good you know but when you step back and you see that something's going on that is impossible for us to know, which is who we are and what we are doing. And it's easy to see the assault, the insult, the ignorance, the atomization, the uh, demonization by politicians and religious people of people with different skin color, belief, culture, things they put on their head, <laughs> you know. But what is hard to see, unless you look around you, is how extraordinary we are. And that message doesn't come anywhere. Right? Turn on TV, find it. And I feel like, you know, in this darkness, you know, there is something so sacred that's occurring, you know. And it's not sacred in the sense of rushing to a guru or rushing to a religious belief or rushing to an ism. Not at all. Not at all. It's about people one by one, you know, in whatever way they come to it, and they come to it one by one, you know, experiencing probably by letting go, probably by letting go, how we are one. There is only one truth, and that is oneness. All the rest is facts. <laughs> and what Emerson experience in the Jardin de Plante was actually impermanence. It wasn't static. It was that everything changes. Everything's changing. Right? And in that sense, he became present again. And you see it in the journal that night. He wrote in his hotel, he became present. He wasn't present. He was in grief. He was in mourning, thinking about the past, thinking about his future. But he wasn't present. And he became present. He never lost his grief for his first wife, but he 
gain something. And when Michael and I spoke with the group today about hope, somebody asked me about hope, and I said, I think hope is a mental narcotic. I said, I don't recommend it. And when I've said that to audiences before, they go, oh, just like some of you did. <laughs> and the reason I don't recommend it is because hope is the mask of fear. And fear is our ally, not our enemy. Because fear is the shadow. It's the darkness. And if you think of Emerson again, why did he have this experience? How could he? Because he came, in a sense, he let in that darkness. He let in that grief. And when we go from hope to hope to hope to hope, we don't do that. We stay in illusion because hope is always about the future. And the future doesn't exist. But what does exist, and which is so powerful, is our intention. That is the only thing we can control. And in that, when we give up the idea that we will know the outcome of what we're going to do, we can sing, dance, and play, <laughs> and have a great time, even though, as Wendell Berry says, you know, be joyful though you know all the facts. <laughs> We can know the facts, but then not be taken down by the facts. And it is in that joy, in that expression of life, you know, that we attract people to us. <laughs> people want to play in our sandbox. You know, Jeanine Benyus, the great biologist, author of Biomimicry, famously said that life creates the conditions that are conducive to life. And that's all we need to know, and that's all we need to do. And the rest of it, out of our hands. So whether it's in the legal profession, or medicine, or in gardens, or in a forest, or wherever we do it, we're creating the conditions that are conducive to life, right? That's what life does. We are life. Easy. The fun part is mastering it. Right? Mastery. That's, that's a whole life. That's a thousand lives, right? And if you, if you really parse religion, you know, parse the, the, the you know, the, the, the six paramitas or, or um, you know, Sermon on the Mount or uh, the, the, the 99 attributes of Allah, you know, and there's Al-Mukit, the sustainer, you know, the sustainer, the feeder, the guardian, you know. You know. I mean, if you parse the, these statements in these sort of, uh, of religion, they are, you know, we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. I mean, they're profoundly biological. <laughs> these are biological instructions. Cleverly disguised as religion. Because they arose from social movements. They became religions, and in religions, they were encapsulated and hidden. And when you open up, then you can see them not as belief systems, which they're certainly taught as, or some of them are, but as like simple instructions, like Rabbi 
Hillel's comment, famous comment about the Torah, you know, do unto others as you have, what has them doing to you. All the, read it, all the rest is commentary. <laughs> That's it. You get that part, the golden rule, you're gone. You're done. You're done. Right? And the golden rule is what life does. And life is about mutualisms. It's not about doggy dog. You know, another misinterpretation. You know, this extraordinary way that life connects. And it's not altruism, although that's what we have, but it's mutualism, you know. And the, 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 what this movement promises is the capacity and the ability for us to see that in everything we do. It's not that we have to go to a garden or the forest to do that. We can go to our profession, to our office, to our school, you know, wherever it is, you know and embody that quality. And we then no longer live in a world with an absentee God. Right? Thank you so much. Well, Paul, thank you mm. for that. That was beautiful. And while we're uh, attending some of the other uh, questions, um, there's so many directions, so many issues, so many questions that you raised. Um, but I think the place I'd like to go first, we both referenced a conversation we had about hope over brunch. And I think, it's, I think, I think we both agree it's an important question. Mm. And I don't think it's a question of one of us being right and the other wrong. But it's a question of, uh, of how we hold hope and what we mean by the word. So in your language, if I understand you correctly, you say hope is a narcotic. Mental narcotic. And that it is uh, a mask for fear. A mask of fear. A mask of, of fear. Our, of our own fear. Right. And that fear, if I heard you correctly, should be an ally, not an enemy. It can be if you accept it and make friends with it. Right. Um, and that hope is about the future, right? Right. right. And no, that, nobody has a hope for the present, right? Because and that what matters is our intention in the present. What we can, you asked on the way over, said, "Well, what do you do?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, instead of hope, I have, I focus on my intention." Right. So on the word intention, we agree completely. And a lot of my work over the last 26 years has been in the Cancer Help Program, yes. as you know. And one of the things we say in the Cancer Help Program on the first, first afternoon, first evening, is that the single most important thing that people with advanced cancer, which you can argue is a metaphor for what's happening to the earth right now yes. very easily, that people with advanced cancer come on the Cancer Help Program, that the most important thing they bring with them is the power of their intention and that they've come on the Cancer Help Program because right. they believe that this will be useful to them. Mm -hmm. They think they will find something of value. And the power of their intention meets the power of our intention to create a useful place. And there's a circle of intention where all of the other participants and the staff hold the intention that this will be useful, not only for each of us, participants and staff, but for each other. And that there's a way in which that circle of intention creates a field in which all of us can go deeper into intentional healing 
than we could otherwise go. So on the language of intention, we use the same language. On the, on the language of hope, uh, as I said over lunch, my favorite quote is from the great Czech playwright and statesperson, the, the late Václav Havel, who said so memorably to me that there's a distinction between optimism and hope. And optimism, which I think is similar to the way you're using the word hope, but we'll talk about that. But optimism, in effect, is a belief that we can, that things will go right, that we can make things better, that, that there's a way to make things better. And that hope, he says, by contrast, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. Now, I also referenced Brother David Steindl Rast. We just did a New School interview with him, a spiritual biography. Many of you know him. He's the successor to Thomas Burton, a very extraordinary man. He's going to have an 87th birthday in San Francisco, where I'll be interviewing him with Fritjof Capra. And uh, so I've been immersed in his extraordinary work. And Brother David does something similar to what Václav Havel does, but instead of distinguishing between hope and optimism, he distinguishes between hope and hopes. So he says we have our hopes, our individual hopes, that this will happen, that that will happen. But he says, by contrast, hope itself is something different. And in that sense, in the faith-based version of uh, faith, hope, and love, there's a deep meaning of hope, which I don't think is a narcotic. I think it is... Um, a place from which uh, we move in the world. It is deeply connected to your meaning of intention. Now, you've also said that when you talk about, tell people they should abandon hope, all ye who enter, uh, that, um, that there's a shock in the audience because people can't imagine what to do without hope. And my response to that would be perhaps well, I'm just going to say a couple of things. That I think you have to ask who you're talking to. I mean, there's a, a deep spiritual teaching that there are truths that can be interpreted at different levels. And we were talking earlier that asking people to give up hope is very equivalent to asking people to face death. And because we are facing the death of a great way of, life, of, a, of a creation that we've been given and, and, you know, that we cannot reverse so much of it, that there are very large parts of the human community that don't have the energy or the time or the or have thought or just evolved far enough in some sense to take that step, to look either directly at death or directly at the great dying, this seventh great, you know, uh, uh, the seventh great uh, extinction. extinction of species mm. in the history of the earth. So I guess what I'm coming to is that I think it's useful to be careful about who you say to <laughs> that you should give up hope, because I think a lot of people need hope in the sense of hopes or optimism. And I also believe that there is, as I've said, a useful meaning of hope that is a deep orientation of the human soul, that is not a narcotic, but is in fact an energizing force for intentional service to life. Well.
How about that? Okay. <laughs> He's a really smart man. <laughs> and a good man. Um, I feel like Vasav Havel's definition of hope is stipulative. Is what? Stipulative. He's stipulating a definition. And who could argue with that, with that aspiration that expressed in that quotation, which I know, and it's a wonderful quotation. I don't think that's hope. Um, and when I have, what I said was that when, in, in audiences, when I, I've suggested that people give up hope, there was this sort of jolt, you know, people, well, what do you mean? You know, and what I've said is, that's what I'm talking about. That jolt is your fear. And, and so the, the hope then is there to, to, in a sense, you know, buffer. <laughs> it's like a way to separate yourself from that or not feel. And I think hope is an addiction. And all addictions are ways of not feeling. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, TV, liquor, alcohol, whatever it is, choose you whatever you want to be addicted to. But it's a way of not feeling. And oftentimes we, we don't recognize it because the alcohol makes us feel more, the drugs makes us feel more, or you know, we get excited watching sports and we say, we're f no, you're actually not feeling. And so hope, in my opinion, and I really talk about it in the terms of sort of the progressive movement and, you know, has been a way to, it's kind of like a carrot that is held in front of ourselves, you know, that we keep moving towards. And the loss of that is the loss of this uh, uh, a meeting with our death, that we're going to die. And we're going to deal with that one way or the other, you know. Uh, sooner is better. Because sooner liberates you. And, and when you're liberated, then the imagination is liberated, the creativity is uh, 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 animated. When you have hope, hope is future-oriented and therefore has some sort of outcome in mind. That outcome becomes blinders, becomes a constraint, becomes a limiting factor to human imagination and creativity. And um, when, when optimism to me is just panglossianism, so I agree that optimism is, is uh, I mean, a lot of people are just naturally bubbly optimistic. I'm not decrying that. I'm just saying as a way of life, you know, it's not so helpful. But, but hope to me is an addiction that uh, really is particularly powerful in America. America is very a hope-addicted country. And all I'm suggesting is that we don't have a lot of time, probably, and the sooner we get rid of anything that's extra, the more effective we will be in doing what has to be done. I don't know what has to be done, but I think we know what has to be done. Did Steve know what had to be done when he opened the bookstore? He just did it. Did he know? what the results are, you know, would be. No, he just did it, right, you know, and so forth. But so we can do things that seem small and inconsequential at the time, but we do it with great intention, right? It's not like hope, it's intention. I have an intention, I'm gonna do this. 
And just like Thoreau, when he went to jail, had no idea that his talk would become an essay, would become, you know, civil disobedience would become the mean for Gandhi and other people. He just had the intention. And, and so what I'm trying to say here is that we get freed, liberated, so that we can do what's seemingly the inconsequential. The small things, because it's all small things that are going to re-knit the world. And those small things are most extraordinarily done when we feel free. And we don't feel free when we're bound by hope. Got a pause meter thing. Well, that's useful. (laughs) I'm not sure yet. I'm going to have to reflect because I'm not sure whether we've reached agreement. One point that um, would be useful for me to ask is do you believe that hope should be abandoned at every developmental stage? Uh, For example, what what would you tell an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a young adolescent. Um, I have uh, two friends that you may know, Rick and Grassi and Peggy Taylor, uh, uh, who uh, are wonderful social change people. And Peggy's done a lot of work with young people. Yes, she has. And uh, created the Power of Hope group and so forth. And one of the things she said to me that was very memorable was that as adults, we have to protect the young from our cynicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm not cynical but like you I think we're we both agree that the time we are living in is a, a very catastrophic period of time and that there's a great deal that we can't reverse you know of, that is happening but what is the narrative to uh, a child or a, a, a someone in the full sort of fledged idealism of adolescence, what is the narrative for them if uh, we do not, in some sense, uh, how can I say this, moderate our experience of what's happening in the world? How would you do that? Well, the opposite of, of, of first of all, uh, uh, when I say it, I just suggest people give it up. They can, I'm not. It's just a suggestion. I, I find it helpful. If it's not helpful, you shouldn't give it up. And keep it. It's, uh, some people drink red wine. Some do white wine. I, you know, I don't drink wine. I'm not going to suggest you don't drink wine. You know, it's like whatever you want to do. But I think, I think it's helpful because the opposite, of, not having hope doesn't mean you're cynical. And uh, Alex Steffen has this wonderful phrase, cynicism is obedience. So... Cynicism is obedience. Mm. And so, not useful, not helpful at all. With young people, the, what you bring to them is joy. If you bring to them joy, like Wendell Berry says, knowing the facts, that you're the go-to person, and they will go to learn and interact and become really effective people. I'm not saying they're not becoming effective at a Piggy's program, not at all. And fine, call the power of hope. But at the end of the day, it's really who Peggy is. It's really what happens there. It's not the word hope um, that makes a difference. It, it, it is the sense that people get tools and means 
to express themselves in the world that um, is both catastrophic, but also is this extraordinary blessing to us. This world is a blessing right now. This is paradise. This is extraordinary. We live in extraordinary times, and I feel like we came here with intention. We just forgot. And why are we all here at the same time? Because we want to all meet and figure out what's going on and, 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 and make this transition. This transition, who knows what it's going to be like, you know? I mean, we can predict it, but I just don't, I just don't see hope as being helpful. And I want to be helpful. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm just looking, at the, you know, and I, I just feel that when you really, really explore that within yourself, you'll find that it can't stand alone. That hope does not stand alone. It, it, it depends on fear. Well, and you mentioned earlier to me that, that the sense of wanting to be helpful is kind of your core intention. Mm. Yeah. And I like that a lot because I agree with you that... Uh, I, in fact, I was saying to a, a wonderful young man uh, who's here today, Sasha, uh, who was asking me, he's right here, right. Uh, who was asking, who, who has done extraordinary work planting uh, fruit trees in, in uh, the global south and, and uh, had enormous impact and, and came to the conclusion that planting fruit trees was not going to reverse the size of the trends that were And so has gone through a, a real challenging time about what to do next. And my response to Sasha when we talked was, uh, you know, we don't get to decide how mm. the global trends are going to go. That's not in our individual power to do. But the small things, the planting fruit trees or whatever it is that each of us is given to do, uh, may cumulatively, as you said in a Blessed Unrest, like an immune system, uh, reverse shift transmute the direction. Well, what I'm interested in is, 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 is people being liberated to be their finest, truest, greatest self. And what I say is there's no inconsequential action, only consequential inaction. And um, so the, the inaction is often created by fear and by despair and by, you know, seeing, wow, it's, 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 what can I do? I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just one person. I, my, my resources are limited, my, my skills are limited, I didn't get a graduate degree, I didn't get a high school, whatever, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. What matters is intention, and, and what matters is that people feel free to do things that are seemingly inconsequential, <coughs> seemingly, I really want to emphasize that. And in the book, Blessed, I talk about, you know, this, like, well, who renamed Thoreau's essay? Who created that me? We don't know. Pretty inconsequential action at the time. Who is the person at the India Times in Durban, South Africa, who you know, found this article on civil disobedience and gave it to Gandhi after, just after he, as a solicitor of, of color in South Africa, had, with the Muslims and Hindus, decided to not register under the Black Act and go to jail. And in that, that night, Gandhi's writing in his journal, how worried he is about getting arrested because he can be disbarred and that's his career and you know how terrible
terrible that would be, and yet everybody's decided to break the law. You know, and then someone hands him Thoreau's essay. Who is that person? What an inconsequential act that was, right? No. See, so what I'm trying to say here is lighten up and, <laughs> and, and congratulate each other and praise each other and celebrate each other and celebrate what you're doing, you know, and, and, and give it up because we cannot know the results of our actions. We can't know the future, but we can know, you know, that we're in our heart and that what we're doing is the best we can do, including taking care of ourselves so we don't burn out. Yeah, that, that's beautiful and, and deeply resonant with my own experience, that that's, that's what, what we are given to do. Um, Here's a lovely question. Uh, is the rise of the social phoenix contingent upon fire? Because when life is easy, people are complacent. Hmm. I think that's a statement. <laughs> I don't know, who wrote that? <laughs> it's Claudia. Claudia, where's Claudia? Yeah. You Claudia? Oh yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no life without death. Impossible. Absolutely, there's no energy without sloth. I mean, opposites, we're in a relative world. Opposites abound. You know, that's, that's what keeps it juicy and interesting. I, I met a, a man once in Japan who wanted to heal the world, you know, and, and um, and uh, I asked him what he would do for sickness. It was just sickness. And I said, what would you do if everybody was healthy? He had said, mm, I didn't thank Coca-Cola. <laughs> I, said, I said, why? I said, why? He said, oh, because I didn't make it interesting. <laughs> because really health is about a choice. It's about understanding. It's not about, you know, you're born, you know, mostly healthy now. It used to be, more people were. But, but it just, it's about, we live in a relative world. There's no question about it. So the opposites always come together, including hope and fear. <laughs> Here's a, a question that comes right out of the heart of blessed unrest, I think. How can we help others become aware of our connection, how mutualism works, and become aware of the power we possess through, I would say, collective intention? By embodiment. Embodiment. Um, you can ask yourself who inspires you and why. And then that's your teacher as to how to teach. You know, like, are we attracted to information per se? Mm, yeah, but not really. Maybe from the New York Times. But in terms of, of, of a mentor, teacher, exemplar, we actually take the signals from how they move, the sound of the voice, you know, how they talk to somebody else, the respect they show for, you know, for the people around them. And all those things are, are ways that we understand the authenticity uh, of, of a teaching or information or something that wants to be conveyed to us. And so the, 
the, the that 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 development of, of, of self-awareness, which is the awareness of, of 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 how we are so intimately connected to other, uh, is the is almost like the gating mechanism between you know being didactic and and, and being truly nurturing. I like the response very much because uh, I think embodiment is one word for it, and by embodiment or by our actions, essentially, um, although embodiment is a fuller sense than simply our actions. But my deep experience is that I am much more convinced by seeing how people actually are in relationship mm. to each other and what they choose to do with their lives than by whatever version of is going on in their heads. You know, that mm. we all have different spiritual constructs, different social constructs, and they, they may be phenomenally different. But if somebody is kind, and if they are wise and reasonably skillful about what they do, then that's what I trust. And that seems to me equivalent to what you're talking about as embodiment, is that that, that is what, what, you know, what we have to offer, mm -hmm. uh, and that almost always trying to tell somebody else something or teach them something. Uh, When's the last time you did something that somebody told you to do? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can get this one. It seems like it has always been so that social movements arise to posit an alternative way to be human. Uh, or an alternative, uh, alternative way to be human. Um, we may enjoy some success in our personal lives, but why would we ever imagine that a mutualist alternative would come to be the dominant mode? Um, so I guess that's the question. In other words, mm. uh, these social movements posit some kind of utopian or, or ameliorative vision and perhaps we can do things in our lives, but how can we imagine that a mutual, mutualist alternative could come to be dominant? That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I think if we didn't have examples, we couldn't. Right. We might not at this time, but the world's redolent with examples. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, it really goes back to the origin of the abolitionist movement in England. And What's interesting about the, the way it started was that, you know, 12 people got together just around the kitchen table and one night and said, we want to abolish the, the trade in slavery. They couldn't abolish slavery, but they could abolish the Eng English trade. And um, why did they do that? Okay. And the, when, when the movement became more prominent, um, it, it was questioned, ridiculed, um, um, you know, made fun of, dismissed. Um, does that sound familiar? Um, and uh, but one of the main reasons it w was sort of treated with incredulity was because uh, to the knowledge of the people at the time, particularly parliamentarians who were going to have to pass the law or not, was that people didn't organize themselves to work on behalf of people 
from whom they would never receive direct or indirect benefit. No one did that. Why, why would you do that? Social movements are about yourself or your affinity group. But why would you do that? Why would you waste your time? You don't get anything out of it. You know? And um, it was a new thing. <laughs> That's why the abolitionism was important in two ways. One is it was successful, but, but um, two was that it created a new way for people to organize. And now I'm saying there's over a million organizations in the world that do that and don't think twice about it. And they work on behalf of people from whom they will never receive direct or indirect benefit, or what's even more interesting, people they never meet or see or know. Ever. Ever. And that's what they do. How did we invent that? And that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. That goes back to the axial age. That goes back to what Karen Armstrong was talking about. You know? And uh, that goes back to this deep, deep sense of, of connectedness, you know, in not only in place, but in time. And uh, so my response to the question is, I, I don't know, why do humans do that? They're doing it now. And that is what's unremarked upon, is because what's remarked upon is the venality, the greed, the selfishness, the self-serving, the, the vanity, you know, all these uh, the seven deadly sins can make a lot of big headlines. But what doesn't make the news is altruism. And we know that altruism is hardwired into every child. It's hardwired. We, it comes with packets complete with altruism. It was built in at the factory, and um, and it takes you know uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in you know modern education to, to, to take it out. You know, <laughs> and and so what you're seeing is people rediscovering that you know because it makes them more alive. And who doesn't want to be more alive? And when we're working just for ourselves, you know, it's deadening. We feel dead. We feel dead. We feel our own death. And then we anesthetize ourselves, right? Anesthetize. And an anesthetic is an anesthetic. So instead of aesthetics, beauty, grace, justice, all, you know, we have anesthetics. And we can do it in numerous ways. That's addiction. And um, uh, so uh, I think it's one of the miracles of this time is that, the, that this, this, this idea of organizing ourselves and working on behalf of each other and others uh, is uh, arising in such a powerful way. Mm -hmm. you know? And we don't need to be blessed or sanctioned or approved to do it by the powers that be. I think that's critical. And I also, I agree with you, and I also place the narrative about uh, the abolitionist movement and the end of slavery. You know, one looks at the last 500 years, and we've moved from despotism to democracy, from mm -hmm. slavery to freedom, the women's movement, the labor movement, you know, the civil rights movement, the human rights movement, the animal rights movement, the gay rights movement, so on and so forth. Every single one of these has been an expansion of respectful awareness to a larger, both human and even now, non-human audience, mm -hmm. so that they're even 
there's new regulations about uh, medical experiments with chimpanzees mm -hmm. on the grounds that they are too close to human to allow, you know, torturous mm -hmm. experiments to continue. So on the one hand, we lost the incredible sense of interbeing of original peoples, and we descended, in a sense, into this completely materialist paradigm. Uh, but uh, at the same time, over the last 500 years, there's this race, it seems, between an evolution of uh, the circle of mutually respectful awareness uh, and our destructive power. And so it seems to me the narrative that you've just offered about abolition and the new narrative that you offer in Blessed Unrest can be uh, placed in that framework of all the other movements that really do show that humans evolve. And, and one other point about that is that the evolution, the point about social movements and fire, the evolution is particularly intense right after wars. So that after the Civil War, after the, you know, war and all of its tragedy has the capacity to mobilize, just like our own great wounds, our own great suffering, mobilize our own consciousness. So wars have the same collective capacity. And if, as seems almost certain, the crises continue to mount, the question is, will those crises serve that same catalyzing impact on collective human consciousness that we've witnessed mm -hmm. over the last 500 years? Mm -hmm. I'll let that stand. Okay. So, <laughs> I want to ask a couple more questions in our last 15 minutes with you. Uh, you referenced the, um, the, the conversation that we had uh, about currencies and uh, finances and your last appearance here, and you, and you talked about how the, the currencies, are, the global financial system is being hollowed out and the, uh, you know, the, the debt swaps and the trillions of dollars that are just, you know, uh, make-believe money. I still struggle with the question of what kind of local, national, international systems of exchange or currency uh, make sense in our time. Um, uh, you know, there is... A, a major narrative uh, on the on the right that we should return to the gold standard, mm -hmm. and then there have been very thoughtful suggestions by progressives that what we need uh, is uh, a uh, a global t uh, currency like the Terra based on a basket of commodities, mm -hmm. and so the and then there are the local currencies which are systems of social exchange. Um, mm -hmm. But my question to you is, as you look at the currency system, you know, with all of the challenges, where do you see the room for improvement? How, if you were, as you do, advising a head of state or, or people who are thinking seriously about, let's just say, the American currency system and uh, the local currencies that are, that are coming up all over, what would you say we should do about the American currency system, just to take that one as an example? At this point, what to do with this? Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, I don't know if there's a way back where we are now. You know, like that, or, 
you know, Orpheus and Eurydice and going down to hell and, you know, then Orpheus has to go back the way he came and not look back or he loses Eurydice. I mean, you know, that's a great myth and, but I'm not sure we can get back from where we are. I mean, I'll be honest, I think we're gone. The currency's gone. Um, the question is, what will replace it? And there'll probably be a new dollar, just like every other country. Um, you get 10 of them, 100 of them for the one you've got. I mean, you know, we're just bankrupt. And we're, and the, 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 the reason we should be aware of it is because um, it's called the fear trade. The fear trade in, in, in markets is what you do when you're afraid. And when you're afraid, with, and since 2008, people buy dollars. So it's the fear trade. So our dollar, even though we're making them fast as people are buying them <laughs> faster, uh, we're cool, you know. Uh, we can still buy things with them. But, um, but someday the fear trade is going to flip. And in other words, there's too many dollars. And, um, and that is when everybody goes to the other side of the boat, you know, wants to get rid of the dollars. And then that, that's, the, that's the omega point, you know, which, which is the which has been put in place by, you know, a Federal Reserve system that really is captured by the banks and really is there to the care and feeding of money center banks instead of the citizens. To replace it, I think we probably need a whole bunch of things as opposed to a single, you know, so let systems, local currencies. I mean, I think we need a federal currency. Uh, a, an international currency is with based on commodities is a little problematic because commodities are perishable. The reason people get gold and silver is because it doesn't change over time. And and politics and everything else does. So that was the idea was to have something that you know, it's interesting yesterday they they're starting to find gold bars that uh, people are drilling out and putting in tungsten. And uh, so, you know, already, you know, which, which you saw in Rome, too, at the end of the Roman Empire, the fake gold, fake silver coins, you know, and, and uh, they learned how to silver plate. <laughs> and so I, I mention only because it's sort of, again, emblematic. It's, just, it's symptomatic of a kind of, um, uh, what would be the term, um, a volatility and you know when when in in, in ecosystems when um, um, the when the when the the environment changes they'll they'll go into perturbation you know the big swings you know and and um, so when you talk about climate change really we're talking about climatic volatility you're talking about perturbation talking about big highs and deep lows, you know, and quick changes and, you know, and so that's what we're seeing in money. That's what we're going to see in money. And we're insulated, you know, because we're the reserve currency for the world. And we may stay that way for a long time. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't predict the future. But I just simply know that what we've done is, is, um, is uh, crazy. And uh, so what I'm saying, when I was in Portland, I was giving a talk for Eileen Brady, who's running for mayor. And um, what I was saying is, and I said Vancouver, um, is it's time to bring your money home. It's like midnight. Do you know where your money is? I bet you don't. I bet you know where it isn't. It's not in Marin County or San Francisco or California. I'll tell you that. And so it's your money. And your money is out there doing mayhem every day. 
and you think it's yours because you have, you know, digital readout on your CRT or, uh, you know, on your statement, and that's not where your money is. We've got to bring our money home, whatever it is, in whatever form it is, and however it's screwed up, we have to bring it home so that whether it's dollars or taras or less currency and so forth, that it, we're supporting each other with our money. We're lending it to each other. We're taking that risk with each other, and some loans will go bad and so forth. We're paying interest to each other. We're getting interest from each other, okay? So we're regenerating. Talk about regenerative, you know. This is how you regenerate is because when you look at this United States, basically you see a few places that are capital concentrators and a whole bunch of places that are bleeding capital bleeding capital. They're like somebody cut their wrist and put it in warm water and then I said, I feel weak. Well, yeah. And, and, and it's called Detroit, you know. It's called, you know, so-called ghettos. It's called any place where the money goes in and leaves right away. And we're talking about here in terms of economies is economic watersheds is what we want to create. And a, and a healthy watershed, you know, receives water quickly just and releases it slowly. So the creeks are you know, not seasonal, they're year-round. And a sick watershed receives water slowly, that means it runs off, you know, and releases it quickly, right? So we can think the same way in terms of economics. We look at watershed economics, really, which is we want to, in a community, in a region, and so forth, let's soak up the money and keep it, right? You keep it by circulating, not by hoarding it. And that way, and so forth, and then it releases over the time and over whether it's annually or beyond that in terms of long-term loans or mortgages or to buy farms or to change a farm to organics or whatever and so forth, then that money is regenerating. It's building up natural capital. It's building up employment. It's building up skills. It's building up local knowledge. It's building up connections, you know, the way we used to meet at bookstores and post offices and so forth like that. I mean, those things are lost. And when you bring money back, you know, to its place, it's, it's like come home, you know, E.T., come home. Dollars, come home. And, and like, you know, we need a state bank. Our, states, our state money goes to these money center banks. We need, we need a county bank, you know. Our county should not give its money to, to, to regular banks. We should, you know, I was in Vancouver. They have Van City. Does anybody know Van City? It's the biggest credit union in North America. It's $15 billion, okay? Guess who owns it? You know, the depositors. It's like, what a... What a concept. And, and every year, they get, they're making about $270 million in profits every year, and half of it goes to the, you, goes to you. The other half they keep, with your permission, by board directors elected by you to invest in green loans and loans for you know, electric cars and for retrofits and for you know, social entrepreneurs and this and that. And you read your annual report every year, and you go, oh my god, my money is doing so much good. Right? So I'm not sure we could control the currency or figure, figure that one out, but we sure as heck can bring it home, you know? Yeah. Paul Hawkins, thank you. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Thanks.